The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. The state's newest high court convenes as a full body for the first time. Extreme weather and climate in Wisconsin accelerates and layoffs loom for smaller state campuses. Good evening, I'm Zach Schultz filling in for Frederica Freiburg tonight on Here and Now. The state's climatologist on the extremes of climate change, a librarian on the community calls to remove LGBTQ plus books, UW Oshkosh prepares for impending layoffs. We speak with the faculty senate president and state job numbers are strong, but a new report shows women's workforce participation slipping. It's Here and Now for September 8th. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. Northern Bayfield and Douglas counties reached the highest drought rating possible recently, marking the first time any part of Wisconsin has been designated with exceptional drought since the monitoring program began more than 20 years ago. This, while flood warnings span the southeast corner of the state. And this week, red flag warnings for extreme fire danger were issued in southwest Wisconsin as temperatures continued to soar. Here to help us understand the convergence of these extremes is the co-director of the Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change Impacts, Steve Vavris. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, most people that understand climate change is real also realize that weather patterns will continue to get more extreme. But do we need to redefine extreme? I mean, what is extreme? Is it 100 degrees at the beginning of September and the start of school extreme anymore? Or is it going to get a lot worse? And this will look like the good old days in a few years. It's a great question. We have shifting baselines right now when it comes to climate. Uh, that what, what seemed ordinary uh, or what may be seeming more ordinary in the future uh, would have been considered extreme uh, years ago. We, we saw that for sure in the South this summer, uh, Phoenix having its hottest summer on record and breaking all sorts of extreme 100 plus degree days. And that certainly looks like the future we're heading toward. And so the definition of an extreme may well change. Um, I, I'm afraid that people are becoming a bit numb to records, for example. We, we seem to have record after record when it comes to weather and climate these days. And it's easy for people to start to think, wow, this is just the new normal. A lot of Wisconsin's infrastructures, homes, businesses, schools, roads were designed and built for a different era. How prepared are we for this new reality? That is something we really need to face and look at hard because, as you say, we built our infrastructure for a climate that no longer exists and it's not going to exist in the future, most likely. And so decisions on uh, long-term building, um, road conditions that can withstand heat, uh, culverts that can withstand large storm runoff events, uh, building homes that are more uh, able to cope with hot days, uh, and, and even public health decisions about what we do during heat waves. Those are all sorts of decisions we need to be facing, and we need to face them quickly. And um, fortunately, some of them have win-win opportunities. For instance, if we clean up our air by reducing carbon emissions, we also improve air quality, which improves things like asthma and uh, can extend lifespans. So when we talk about policymakers, most Republicans in the legislature either deny the existence of climate change or at the very least don't want to see the state involved. But what role do federal, state and local government have in dealing with this crisis? 
I think it falls along the lines of both mitigation and adaptation of climate change. So when we talk about mitigation, we're talking about ways to reduce the problem in the first place. How do we reduce the amount of heat trapping pollution we create? Are there any ways that we can draw some of that heat trapping pollution down out of the atmosphere? Uh, the other way is through adaptation. So accepting that climate change is happening and it's going to happen and it's going to impact us. What are the ways that we can change our strategies, our, our operations, our, our way of life to adapt and cope with this new reality? There have been a lot of assumptions in recent years about Wisconsin as a possible climate refuge in the years to come. Is that still true? As we've seen, we are not immune to weather variations and climate change. The wildfire smoke caught everyone off guard uh, in all the concerns about climate change. Wildfire smoke was not one that rose to the, the level uh, that we saw in the past few months. But yet there we were in late June experiencing some of the worst air quality in the world. And so that was one of these unknown unknowns when it comes to uh, weather and climate variations. But um, we we do need to rethink. I think the people who are advocating Wisconsin as a climate haven do need to rethink that because we are not immune by any stretch. And we've seen it this year with the drought, the heavy rainfalls, and then recently the extreme heat. Is there a silver lining out there? Is there any hopeful news about you know our ability to adapt and survive as a society? Absolutely. We, we need to stop thinking doom and gloom about climate change, because if we do, it kind of becomes a self-reinforcing cycle and, and make, makes people just throw up their hands and say, oh, it's, it's all bad news. There's nothing we can do about it. But there is a lot we can do about it. And we need to point out success stories. And what a really good example of a success story is how we're coping better with extreme heat. People may be aware, remember the Chicago heat wave of 1995, which killed hundreds of people. After that, Chicago and other cities around the country started taking heat waves a lot more seriously as a public health threat. And they adopted heat wave action plans, which have been implemented around the country. And those have been remarkably successful. All right, Steve Vavris, the state climatologist and the co-director of the Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change Impacts. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Zach. A massive $18 million budget deficit at UW Oshkosh is leading the administration to project laying off 20% or 1,100 employees. The third largest UW System campus announced some layoffs and furloughs will begin this fall. To hear from the employee perspective, we're joined now by the faculty senate president, Pascal Manning, an associate professor of English at UW Oshkosh. And thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. What impact will these cuts have on the university, both in terms of quality of service and general morale? Well, I think that the impacts uh, have the potential to be catastrophic in our community. Um, of course, they're going to have reverberations across the entire campus, uh, from the classroom to every other corner of this you know, hugely diverse organism that's our university, and they're gonna be felt in the wider community. Uh, you mentioned 20% uh, of our workforce, but that just accounts for the layoffs. We have an additional projected approximately 100 voluntary retirements that uh, are part of this loss that we're estimating in the coming months. And so taken together, if we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 people leaving our community, that's 30% of our workforce. And it's, it's hard to imagine what the university will look like, but it will look different. 
How much of this has to do with the specifics of enrollment at any state school versus the bigger picture of state funding for the UW system? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that one of the things that we have to appreciate is, of course, enrollment has gone down, but enrollment can't be disentangled from state funding. Uh, and so it's, it's really important to bear in mind that the UW system is underfunded in comparison to other state systems. Uh, the University of Wisconsin system ranked 43rd nationally in per-student funding in 2021. And in the last budget, uh, Tony Evers proposed a $305 million increase for uh, the University of Wisconsin system. But the legislature opted instead to cut the system's budget by $32 million. So the things that we're seeing in this moment, uh, these crises that are not only uh, going on at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, but but elsewhere in the system as well, these are part of a long a long term trend uh, where we can see the state system uh, or the state itself divesting in the university system. Now, you mentioned the, the funding battle over the UW system's budget with the legislature. Republican opposition to the UW systems started with the, the system's commitment to diversity, equity and inclusion programming. Would you sacrifice DEI in exchange for more state funding? Is that is would you consider that as an alternative that would be worth exploring? No, I don't think that's possible. I mean, one of the things that the pandemic has laid bare is that our students need more support, not less support. They need to see themselves reflected in the people around them in their universities. Uh, they need to. Uh, understand the relevancy of a university education to their life. And part of the, 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 the programming that goes into that large bucket of diversity, equity, and inclusion is our uh, programs and initiatives um, that face those very real needs and their, their national needs, their international needs. And so um, DEI, get sort of branded in this, this really simplified way um, by the, the legislature and elsewhere uh, that doesn't account for what students really need a university to be able to uh, project to them. How close are we to the negative spiral of lack of funding, lowers quality, the university can't recruit good talent, enrollment drops further, leading to less funding and just repeating over and over? Well, yeah, I mean, the principal issue here is one of investment. We need to see investment in uh, university level education in the UW system and, you know, any other uh, university system in order to see innovation that enables uh, rises in, in, in enrollment, uh, innovation in programming, uh, reconceptions and reimaginings of educational structures. And so the, the, this, these trends that we've been seeing in the last 20 odd years um, are you know specific to Wisconsin, but they are across the board. We're seeing in the US these kinds of uh, systematic disinvestments. So you know in Wisconsin alone, we've gone from 
uh, a situation in the year 2000 where state and local funding was 6.4% above the national average. And then if we dial over to 2019, we find that state and local funding has fallen by 16.5% below the national average. And per student funding is continuing to fall rapidly. So this uh, hampers universities' abilities to, uh, to, di to diversify and to respond to the problem. In addition to all of this, uh, until March of last year, uh, we were uh, 10 years into a tuition freeze. And so not only were we uh, seeing systematic uh, disinvestment, uh, but we were prevented from setting our own costs. All right. We will have to leave it there. There's more to talk about as this keeps going on. Uh, Pascal Manning at UW Oshkosh, thanks for your time today. Thank you. An anonymous group is asking the Iron River Library to remove nearly 500 LGBTQ plus related materials from the public library and calling for the resignation of library board members. The town is located in Bayfield County in northern Wisconsin and has just a thousand residents. The request came in the form of a letter from, quote, concerned citizens. We were scheduled to speak with the director of the Iron River Library about this attempted book banning, but the president of the library board canceled our interview at the last minute. The president of the board told me over the phone they're trying to gather more facts about who is behind the letter, but the library director says they are not pulling the books. This follows a trend of conservative groups around the country attempting to remove books related to LGBTQ issues. Joining us now is Louise Robbins, a UW-Madison professor emeritus of Library Information Sciences and Studies. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So are there any parallels in history to this current movement to ban books, especially related to marginalized groups? Absolutely. It's been going on for a long time. I think some of the most prominent examples are during the McCarthy period, during the 50s, there was a large group of uh, attempts to censor books related to communists, but also to people of color. There were, in, as it went along, the, um, in the, they, let me back up there a minute. They wanted to ban cheap paperbacks and comic books. One, one person testifying before a congressional committee said comic books would blow your boy's brains out. So they were rather alarmist about the effect of such things. But the targets were people of color, Jewish people, and non-binary people, then too. And then in 1958, for example, a book called The Rabbit's Wedding, a children's book with a black bunny and a white bunny, nearly caused the firing of the state librarian of Alabama, Emily Reed, because the, the state said it promoted interracial marriage. There was a group in the 90s called Family Friendly Libraries who attacked pretty much the same topics. Um, so this like, seems like today's Moms for Liberty. Yeah, this on and on. This seems to happen pretty regularly. What, what kind of impact can a request like this have on a small community? Well, in my experience, it can drive away people who don't agree with the protesters. Um, and that means that in a community, a small community, they might have a significant brain drain. It would split up the community so that people who historically have worked 
well together, now don't. Um, so it can have a big impact. In the group that I studied in Oklahoma in the 50s, a large number of researchers with, a, with Phillips Petroleum fled the city and went elsewhere because they didn't want their children to grow up in such a place. The same kind of thing could happen here, though not on that kind of scale, of course. That's right. So the books in question have to do with gender and sexuality. How do libraries assess what books on these topics go where in, in the interest of you know, all families and children to make sure that they're available, but they're not right out in the front if they're not appropriate? Well, there, there are several things they do. They consult reviews. They look at who, which are award-winning books. They, they have a committee often that decides on what they're going to include or what they're not. The number that the Concerned Citizens cite is a number that's held in all the Northern Waters Library Service libraries, apparently, and also on state e-book collections. So it's not anything that, that if, the, if one library had 450 titles like that, it would be very lopsided. So what they try to do is provide for the reading interests of a wide variety of people and be sure they have things on various sides of an issue through consulting reviewers, um, quality lists, and so on. Just the same way you would try to select a product for your home, you consult you consult those reviews. So if there are parents or individuals that have concerns about some books in a library, what is the appropriate way to do it, to, to talk to a librarian about that? Well, there is such a thing as a reconsideration form, usually, and most libraries are processed. And I do believe all of the libraries in the Northern Waters area have such a process. But you first, you have to have read the book and then you have to identify the specific areas that are problematic um, so that you don't just go, go in with a list of 150 books and say all of these are bad. You have to know what you're talking about and, and make a logical, logical uh, complaint. Um, there are a lot of ways to do that, and sometimes they result in a a change in location for the of shelving for the book, but generally speaking, not removal unless the book is clearly out of out beyond the margins. So we've got about a minute left. In your experience, has book banning ever worked? Are there examples of books that small groups have targeted and have actually removed from the public discourse? I don't believe they've ever been able to remove them completely. I only know of one book in the history of the United States that's had the plates broken, and that was in the like the 40s or 50s, and it had, was has since been reissued. Um, they were uh, I don't know of others. Sometimes, however, an author can be hurt by having someone prejudge their books before they ever get out there, which means that their sales drop, and then they don't have much opportunity to publish again. And it's most important for voices that aren't most frequently heard because. They really don't have, they, until recently, there haven't been that many books published by minority voices. And now there are the opportunity to hear from a lot of people. And libraries are supposed to provide choices and be in a place where ideas can duel it out, not people, but where ideas can challenge one another through your reading. It's a matter of choice, not of indoctrination. 
All right. We'll leave it there. Louise Robbins, UW-Madison Professor Emeritus, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Also this week, Justice Janet Protasiewicz made her first appearance on the bench as a member of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Protasiewicz was sworn in last month, giving the liberals a 4-3 majority and has been at the center of the storm ever since. Legislative Republicans are threatening to impeach Protasiewicz if she doesn't recuse herself from certain cases, and Democrats are lining up behind her, pledging a $4 million ag campaign designed to target Republicans who might vote to impeach. However, on Thursday, none of that was on display. The justices held a hearing on a proposed rule change that would require eviction records to be removed from the state website after one year. Wisconsin job numbers reached a record high in July at more than 3 million. However, a new report from COWS, the High Road Strategy Center, says beneath the bigger picture is a troubling decline of women participating in the workforce, falling below 60% for the first time since the late 1980s. Here to dive deeper into the report's numbers is Laura Dresser, Associate Director at COWS, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, your report shows Wisconsin's economy is strong, unemployment's low, but there's no economic news that doesn't come with a little bit of doubt and insecurity these days. Yeah, right? that's correct. And, and uh, you know, having done this report for many, many years now um, and releasing it on Labor Day. You know, this has some really good news for workers, but that we've documented some really long-term trends that are troubling and see some new things here. When, when it comes to low unemployment, with Wisconsin's <laughs> slow population growth and the, the projected shortage of workers going... That low unemployment seems to be a permanent fixture, right? I mean, our, our unemployment rate is always going to be lower than the national rate. You know, a, a financial collapse will increase our, our unemployment numbers, but ours will remain lower than the national, most likely, because of the demographic structure. And that, that tightness in the labor market creates a little rebalancing of power between workers and employers. And I think that's what we're seeing, is that employers uh, or workers know they have a credible exit threat and uh, they can use that in the labor market. So that that's true now, especially with these very historic low unemployment rates, but will be true going forward, as you point out, because of the demographics. Well, let's talk about the, the women's participation in the workforce and how closely is that connected to the legislative fight going on right now between Governor Evers and Republicans over childcare subsidies and just childcare issues in general? Well, I think that what we know is that right now in the state of Wisconsin, we're very interested in seeing workers be part of this this labor market to embrace the opportunities and to move people from sitting on the sidelines or maybe watching what's happening or maybe taking care of their kids into the labor market and what we see happening you know from this very high level, Wisconsin has always had much higher women's labor force participation than the national average. This was especially true in the late 1980s and on through the 90s. But that gap just keeps closing and closing. And really over the last three or four years, women's labor force participation rate in, this, in the state is coming down more quickly than the slight drift down at the national level. That's closing that gap. And it means that there's capacity to support women's work and to get more engagement of women in this labor market. And I think when you think about what can help women connect with work, it is childcare that makes sense, childcare systems that are strong. And so that fight is going in, on in the legislature right now. How do we invest in our childcare infrastructure? Is it, can you just say it's a market solution? Like eventually someone will figure it out because they need the people in to work? Um, having having watched childcare for so long, um, I I think that that 
the sector requires public investment. We have massive public investment because children are a public good once they get to school, right? We all agree that we're building the future and, and we all invest in schools. Um, and that's how we have job quality in the schools and teacher quality in the schools that can really sustain um, decent jobs. But at the child, at, in the level of early care and education, the wages tend to be very low. And um, parents, especially parents in jobs that pay less than the median wage, half of the workers, in less than the median wage, have a really hard time meeting the cost of care. And so that takes a public investment. So right now we have a largely private solution and states that are taking on more and more public investment are getting that kind of system that can really support women's work. One of the other issues you track is unions around the country and Wisconsin. We've seen fights with places as big as Amazon down to your local coffee shop. What is the situation in Wisconsin? Well, unions have been in a uh, decades uh, decline in their share of the workforce that they represent. This is true nationally. It's true in Wisconsin. Wisconsin used to be a relatively high union density state above national averages. 2011 Act 10, um, the change in the terms of public sector unionization changed all that. So that line began to tip after 2011. And from 2011 to current, um, Wisconsin's decline in unionization far outstrips the national decline and is the worst in the region. Um, so yes, there's, you know, workers are going to find ways to join together and to make their jobs better. And you can see that all over the state and nation going on. Unions are increasingly popular, but so far the headwinds against organizing, especially in a right to work state with very um, hard public sector unionization rules as well, um, just makes, actually turning that into members really hard. Just a few seconds left, but talk about the minimum wage of 725 in Wisconsin. Is it even relevant to today's conversations about the workforce? Such an important question. I mean, we all know that the floor has really come up. Low wage workers are doing better. They're doing the best, um, you know, of any group in the economy. Low wage workers have made more wage gains. So the 725 is technically our minimum wage, like 20 states in the nation. But, but, um, it really matters to raise that wage so that all workers, care workers and other workers know um, what the floor is. All right, Laura Dresser from Cows, thank you so much for Thanks your time. Thanks for having me, great to be here. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and click on the news tab. That is our program for tonight. I'm Zach Schultz, have a great weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.